The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Progressive presents Get Pumped, inspiration to help you do insurance stuff. Okay, time out. You're going to let your budget be the boss of you? Take control with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Tell us what you want to pay for car insurance, and we'll help you find options that fit your budget. Here's some music to get you pumped. I hear your budget laughing at you. Oh, wait, that's just those kids laughing at me. Ignore them! Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk, episode number 30. We are uh, slowly accumulating the episodes, and this one is going to be absolutely jam-packed. I have a triple header of interviews. I have got so many interviews in the can, stocked up, in the vault, etc., that I need to start clearing some out. So today I'm going to give you the one, the only, the boss. Mr. Chris Jericho talking about Fozzie's new album, Judas, and all kinds of other stuff. You will not want to miss this interview. And if that wasn't enough, we head over to Europe for Joey Tempest of the band Europe, who have a new album called Walk the Earth. It is absolutely wonderful it's sort of and and maybe i'm wrong but you can maybe hit me up on twitter at mitch lafon and tell me what you think when you've heard the album but it seems to say it sounds a little bit like some deep purple it's got this sort of 70s european vibe to it. it's it's absolutely delightful and so you might you you got to check that out walk the earth by uh europe and if that wasn't enough, let us head back to the late 70s, early 80s with The Babies. That's right. The Babies, the band that used to feature John Waite. I speak with drummer Tony Brock. They have a new uh, album out called Timeless Anthology 2. You need to check that out. You can head over to Pledge Music, in fact. So um, enough of the banter. Let's get right into this. Up first, the one, the only, the boss man. Chris Jericho. We are speaking with Chris Jericho, frontman for the band Fozzie, and of course, wrestler, actor, entrepreneur, and uh, podcaster. Good day, Chris. How's it going, Mitch? Good. Congratulations on the success of your show. Things have been going great. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And of course, thank you for, for the opportunity. It's, it's really made a, a difference for me in terms of visibility, in terms of guests I can book. And so, a uh, big thank you to that because I, yeah, I'm just a, a rock geek, and so the fact that I can go, you know, hang out with the Scorpions, thanks to to this, is like, oh, okay, I can live with that. Well, that's the beauty of having a podcast with a little bit of steam behind it, is that it does open doors because people are understanding um, just how important podcasts are and how much it's not about terrestrial radio like it used to be in the '80s and '90s. Uh, it's about you know, the, the long form, long term interviews. And I think, you know, if you have the right guy uh, conducting those interviews, that, that people enjoy doing them. I've had a lot of different guys over the years since I started talking to Jericho saying, you know, it was one of my favorite interviews I've ever had, you know, on, diff- on all different uh, forms of entertainment. So when you get that reputation, that's when it's, uh, it, it opens a lot of doors. And like you said, I, I, as a matter of fact, last year, the Scorpions even flew me out to Vegas 
because they wanted me on uh, on on talk to Jericho, and so I get to go you know hang out with them for a little bit and then go watch the show and it's like you know what man my fourteen uh, year old self is pretty happy right now. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, that, that's the other great thing about the podcast format is because, you know, when they do the sort of the CNNs and the Fox News, it's, it's those three minute in and out clips, which is exactly what yes. those things need. But as fans, we want to delve into their mind and their history. And, and you can't do that in any well, other format. You can't. Even as a performer, I mean, you know, um, our record is about to come out. My book just came out. You go do the radio tours, which is you know, an hour or two hours where you try and hit as many areas as you can, as many markets as you can. And you're doing, you know, five to seven minutes in, you know, 10, 10 markets an hour, or whatever the, the, the math is on that. And you basically answer the same question over and over again. And you might get a little bit of a deviation here and there, but it gets really boring. And it's no fun to do that. It's much more fun to kind of talk about stuff that you never really get a chance to talk about and, you know, connect in a different way which is what is great about podcasts. Like you said, you know, if you get somebody that wants to do podcasts in 10, 15, 20 minutes, that's a publicist who doesn't quite understand the, the long form reach and the benefits of doing a longer interview. So um, it is definitely an art form, but when you can hammer it down, it makes for a much better uh, conversation with, with the people that you want to talk to. Yeah. And it really does. And, and I find in my particular case, Whenever I get coverage on a website or something, you know, a, a rock site that picks it up, they're not picking up the first five minutes where we're going, tell me about the new album. They're picking yeah. up stuff from the last 20 minutes or the last half hour where they go, oh, he said that? Oh, okay. But, but and, that, and, that, and that's because you get more comfortable. If you find somebody that you trust, I mean, you have a great, uh, great lineage in this business, a great legacy, you have a good name, so people trust you anyways. But that's why I like listening to, you know, Eddie Trunk or, you know, Chris Jericho, because People know you, and then after a while, they'll open up a bit. I remember I had Slash on a few years ago, long before the Guns N' Roses reunion was announced. Um, and I'm not going to talk about Guns N' Roses with Slash. I don't care. I mean, I know every single person wants to. We're talking about dinosaurs. We're talking about horror movies. We're talking about the Rolling Stones. And about 45 minutes in, he mentions that you know Guns N' Roses opened for the Rolling Stones, and it was a disaster. Well, tell me about that. And suddenly, I got him talking this great... 20-minute story about this fight him and Axel had on stage at a Stones concert in 89 when they were opening for them. And it's like he would never have told that story if you would have opened with Guns N' Roses, but because we were having this great conversation and it just organically went there, now suddenly I have, you know, Flash talking about this stuff. And that's that's the true beauty of, of the comfortability and, uh, like I said, the forum and, and, and the, uh, the media, the medium podcasting it really is um now before i get on to judas let me then talk quickly a little bit more about this podcasting stuff it it is one thing to be you know talk is jericho here's my podcasting but it's quite another thing to set up an entire network where you have different hosts doing different things talk to me about why you wanted to take on that challenge why not just say i'm talk is jericho listen to me and that's it why take on this whole sort of Exit. Um, yeah, <laughs> I can't help myself, Mitch. Um, honestly, like when I get into anything, I look at well, who's who's the top of the top. Okay, well, Adam Carolla. All right, well, what does Adam Carolla do? So I'm looking kind of at his business model and and you know how he does things, how he runs his, his show, and I see that one of the things he has is his own network, and I'm like, well, if he has his own network, I want my own network. And I think at first 
my boss uh, granted me that just because he thought he was placating my ego. But what I knew is that I wasn't doing it just as an ego thing because I knew there was a lot of guys out there that would be very good at podcasting that might not have the forum to get involved in Podcast One, uh, which is, you know, it's the biggest podcasting company in the world. So you can't just show up at the door and go, hey, I want my own podcast. They give you one. There has to be some level of, of notoriety there. And I knew that some of the guys that I might suggest might not have that notoriety where, where Norm Pattis would go for it, the, the boss of Podcast One. So by having my own network, I would kind of, in, in theory, it's like, you know, when you hear that a band had their own uh, label, you know, their own, their own, their own stamp. I can't remember exactly what the, 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 the exact, their own imprint, own imprint. That was it. They would have their own imprint through Sony. So, you know, okay, Phil Anselmo starts whatever house of wax records, but it's through Sony and all he's doing is bringing in these bands that he thinks would be good and giving them a, a, a chance. And that's what I was doing. What I, what I am doing with, with my network and a lot of the shows have become hits. Um, and a lot of the shows, you know, once again, it's hard to kind of generate, income in the marketplace because there's so many podcasts but it's helps all of them with with their notoriety and with their you know the, the, their uh, uh brand association and, and all that but yeah there you go exactly so um it was you know, like i said it's something i wanted to try and when i wanted to get you know, i had some wrestling ones i have a paranormal one i had the pop culture one and then looking for a music one and i actually was already listening to yours um, and I said, well, why don't I just ask Mitch to no-brainer and see if he'll do it? And he did. And here we are, you know, getting close to, you know, eight, nine months later. And it's, uh, it's going really good for you. So excited. Yeah. And, and I, I looked at your network in the sense of like a Howard Stern where he has two channels on his platform and he was bringing in different guys. And I thought, I thought that that's a smart thing to do. You know, that, that's a really wise thing to do. Um, let me move on from that too, because it brings us to know is a four letter word, the book, because your book essentially is that sort of ethos that, that, that I'm just going to do it. Like, you, you know, I'm going to set up a podcast network and I'm going to be an actor and I'm going to go on dancing with the stars. And I'll, um, talk to me about that book and, and, and the difference in the previous three books, because you were sort of doing autobiography, 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 and this one is different. Uh, talk to me about the book. Well, I mean, yeah, and the reason for that, Mitch, is, is like you just basically said it, and the way you said it was exactly the way I felt. Autobiography after autobiography. And listen, there's a lot of great stories to tell. It's, it's one of the, the cool things about, about my life is that I've had a lot of ridiculous experiences. I don't care how many great stories you have. Do we really need four Chris Jericho autobiographies in 10 years? I mean, the first one came out in 07, and here we are in 17. Didn't mean I didn't want to write anymore. I didn't have stuff to say. But I get asked uh, a question quite often, you know, how did you make it in wrestling? How did you make it in music? How do you do all these things you do? So I started thinking about that. Well, how did I make it? How did I do all these things that I do? And kind of had these principles and these ideas and these thoughts that I live by kind of rules that I've picked up over the years from various, you know, celebrities and family members and friends and fictional characters and everything in between. So I came up with the 20 principles of how I was able to, to succeed in my life. And from the David Bowie principle of always reinvent yourself. And that goes back to what we we're saying. Well, I'll start a podcast network because that's reinventing. I'll write a self-help book because it's reinventing me as an author. You know, there's the Gene Simmons principle, always dress like a star. Um, there's the Vince McMahon principle, always work hard. Uh, some of these things that aren't very, it's not rocket science. When you put them all together and read them all at once, 
there is a certain pattern and there's a certain uh, panache to it to realize that it's, it's, it's a special set of rules and it can work for you as well, whether you're a musician or a podcaster or a pharmacist. So it did become more of a self-help book than an autobiography. I still tied it in with all the great stories that either I wanted to tell that I came up with principles surrounding them or um, the uh, story, uh, stories that are principles that I would just kind of focus in on and elaborate on. So um, it turned out really well. It was actually a really big success when it came out. It did double the sales of my last book. And it was something different, which is what I think people who enjoy my writing uh, needed. And that's what I needed, too, because I didn't want to just be the guy that's another autobiography. People just all skip that one. It's like Fast and the Furious movies. Have you seen Fast and the Furious 7? Which one is that? Uh, I'm not sure if I saw that one. Yeah. You never want that. You want people to go, oh, yeah, I read that or I saw that. It was amazing. Yeah, and, and, and a fourth autobiography, other than being self-serving, it's like, okay, listen, you, you, you just wrote a book of your last two years. <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> uh, but, but you, yeah, and that's the funny thing. Like, there is enough stuff to be able to do that. But, you know, I found out I can write books. Uh, yeah, I can write a book every three years if I want, but it doesn't always have to be the same as the last. There are certain, you know, like I said, certain different directions I can take and certain, um, you know, this was a whole different category of book called self-help uh, category. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun to write. And anytime you do something like that, it finally does come out and people get a chance to, to, to enjoy it and read it and be a part of it. It's uh, it's very gratifying. Yeah, it really is. Now, now you mentioned Gene Simmons, of course, of Kiss, and Kiss. I think to both of us is more than just a band. They they have this work ethic that they have shown over and over again, and reinventing themselves and marketing that is beyond just your regular let's plug and play. Talk to me about some lessons you've taken from them, and then also the fact that Paul Stanley wrote your forward. I mean, you talked about the 14-year-old self with the Scorpions, but how does that 14-year-old self sit there and go, wow, the singer of Kiss is writing my forward? Well, it's really cool because it's, it's kind of a full circle thing. I mean, this whole, my whole, I say my whole existence, but my whole professional career, my whole professional existence, all started with, with that quote, if you ever thought of the Klein of the Western Civilization, part two, where Paul's in bed with all the chicks surrounding him and um, he says, the only people that are going to tell you can't do something are the ones that have, that have failed. I'm not going to tell you that you can't do something because I did it. You could do it. And when Paul said that, when I saw it as a 17-year-old kid, 16-year-old kid, whatever it was, he, he was talking to me. You can do it. Because I was always fascinated by wrestling. I was, and I was always a huge uh, trivia monster for rock and roll, like way more than wrestling. I know way more about music than I ever did about wrestling to this day. And I thought, man, I'd be really cool. Like, I, I would really love to be in a band. And I'd also really love to be a wrestler. That's pretty cool, too. So uh, I'll just do them both. Now, you know, 16 years old, growing up in Winnipeg, Canada, I don't know how to do that. There's no internet at the time. I don't know where, where I'm supposed to go to find out how do you become a wrestler. And I, I had a high school band. I've been playing a band since I was 13. But how do you get out of Winnipeg as a rock and roll band? But rather than, you know, worrying about those things, I just kind of focused in on, well, I could just try and find a wrestling school and I can continue to write and record with my band. And um, found out early on, too, that there's a lot of people who, who didn't like the fact that I wanted to do both those things. And I thought to myself, well, why the fuck do you care what I want to do? Like, it's got nothing to do with you. It's got no bearing with you. And then, you know, kind of that, that kiss ethic where it's always been kiss's ethic. You know, believe in yourself and just go and do it. And 
even sitting with Gene, I know you just had him on uh, to talk about the vault. I was, I was happened to be in New York City and went on off of to do the same for my show. And just listening to like, you know, he does whatever he wants to do. And I love his quote about the vault where it's $2,000. It's like, listen, that's the price. That's what it costs. When you go to a Ferrari store, you don't barter. You don't bitch and complain about how much a Ferrari costs. When you go to Ruth Chris, you don't bitch and complain about how much a filet costs. It's what it costs. If you like it, buy it. If not, go away. I don't care. And I love that attitude. And that really is a kiss attitude of just going for it and not caring what anybody thinks. And that, by, by more than anything else, has helped me to, to succeed in all the different things I've done. Because I don't care what your opinion is about what I do with my life. I really don't. If you like it, that's awesome. Join the party. Hang out with me. Let me entertain you as I have for 27 years. If you still have a problem that Chris Jericho is the singer of Fozzie after all these years, you can honestly go fuck yourself. I really don't care at this point. You know, that's the way you have to think about it. And then when you, when you think about that, it breeds more success and more self-confidence. And once you're self-confident, you can conquer anything. Yeah, that's really true. So, so let's talk about Fozzie and the new album, Judas. The album, of course, is out in October, but you started sort of the laying the groundwork back in May. Talk to me about that, that game plan, because usually you want to keep stuff tight. You know, the, uh, the single yeah. comes out two weeks before, and then, but this was very yeah. different and very successful. I mean, we're almost at 10 million views, and I'm sure by the time the, this interview airs, it'll be at 10 million views. Um, well, Mitch, I mean, the thing that is funny is that once again, I would love to be able to sit back and say that this was all, uh, all the way that it was planned. You know, everything worked exactly. What happened was that we put the single out in May because the record was supposed to be out, I believe, in August. But typical rock and roll band, it wasn't finished, it wasn't ready, it wasn't right. And by the time we got it done the way we wanted it, uh, I think the earliest we could get it out was October 13th. And I remember thinking, like, oh my gosh. That's a long time. And even I remember the, the, the record coming a little bit like when you guys didn't turn the record out on time and we would have known and never would have put the single out early. But fast forward to here we are now and Judas the single is higher than it's ever been on the charts. It's number 11 knocking on the door of the top 10. And to get top 10 rock radio is very, very, very hard. Uh, 10 million views on YouTube. The sales for the single have never dipped um, uh, under a certain number. They've been the same number since the, since it went on sale, we, we sold almost a hundred thousand singles, and that's crazy in this day and age. That's like a gold record, you know. Here in Canada, it's a platinum record, I think. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think double I think platinum. I think fifty thousand is platinum or something. No, fifty thousand is gold. It's so platinum, right? So yeah, the platinum, right? Um, but, but but the point is, is that you know after there was no um, there was no other song to dilute the rise of Judas. And what I mean by that is if the record would have come out two weeks later, well, then there's 11 of the songs for people to start listening to. If you would have put on another single in the meantime, well, then that dilutes the power of Judas. What happened with Judas is it became, uh, it's becoming our Enter Sandman, the, the signature song for Fozzie that's just opening all of these doors for us that were always closed in the past. We've had successful songs. We've had some radio play. I think Lights Go Out went top 25 or something. But this is now people that would never give us the time of day are now opening the doors and embracing Judas and Fozzie. So when the next single comes out, I expect it's going to waltz right through. It might not make it as high as Judas. It might not be, I'm not sure how it will be received, but I know that when, 
you finally get that first opening salvo of people getting into it. Now they can't wait for the next single. They can't wait for the record. And here we are finally about to release it. There's people like, I still listen to Judas 10 times a day. I'm really excited to listen to the album. But had, had there not been that five months in between, I don't think Judas would have been given the time uh, to rise as high as it did. And therefore, Fozzie wouldn't be as big as we are right now and continuing to grow. So it all worked out for a reason. And in retrospect, it was perfect timing. Yeah, little little serendipity goes a serendipity goes a long Absolutely. way. Um, Absolutely. There is a new single though, or there's a new song that's that was press released, uh, "Drinking with Jesus," and it says that lyrically the song is about drinking alone, just hanging out with the Lord, and having a few cocktails. Now you've spoken in the past in interviews about how you came to look at God and Jesus through the metal of the 80s, through Striper and Baron Cross. Um, but you've never, in, in terms of what I've seen, you've never been sort of at the front saying, you know, everybody go to church and everybody. Talk to me about that connection and why it's important to have that faith and bringing it out in a song like... Um, well, yeah. well, it's funny that here's the thing. It's like, I want to drink with Jesus to be the second song that people heard after Judas because it's a kick-ass rock and roll song. And Judas is a little darker. Uh, there's no guitar solo in Judas. It didn't need one. Whereas drinking is a crazy guitar solo section and a great middle down, melee breakdown. It's the type of song you put the top down and drive down the highway, you know, at midnight. And the thing is, I did not write Drinking with Jesus. I probably would never write a song called Drinking with Jesus. That came from our producer, Johnny Andrews. And it's funny because, uh, you know, we are, Rich and I are, 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 we're believers and we have faith. But that song, uh, the chorus is fucked up. I'm drinking with Jesus. So there's people that are like, oh, right on, it's a Christian song, and I hear that. Um, so it's just, it's just, I think it's a metaphor for like, I drink alone, like George Thurgood. And that came from that producer's band, is that, that was, those are his lyrics. So that's another thing with this album. In the past, I wrote all lyrics. On this record, we worked with an outside producer, Johnny Andrews, and it's a typical story of like, when Metallica worked with Bob Rock, or when, you know, Kiss worked with Bob Ezrin, DC with Mutt Lang. It's like, who is this interloper that's coming in here and telling us what to do? Rich and I made a decision that we wanted to have an outside producer. We would give him full control, whatever he says goes. And like a great producer, he got involved in the songwriting. And, you know, some of the songs are mine, some of the songs are Johnny's, some of the songs are Rich's, but they're all Fozzie songs now. So um, it, it's just a whole different way of thinking for us at this at this stage. But you're right, I was a huge uh, 80s Christian metal fan. I have actually a wicked uh, group text of Howard Jones, from Devil You Know and I was with Light the Torch and Richard Christie from the Howard Stern Show. And then we have the best time just laughing about all the great Christian bands in the 80s. But uh, Drinking with Jesus is not uh, written from that, uh, from that viewpoint. From that viewpoint. So uh, let me go back to the sort of the beginning of uh, Fozzie. I mean, you, you come out and you're, you're Fozzie Osborne. You're just these guys playing together, doing some covers and having a good time. The first two albums, Fozzie and Happenstance, a lot of cover songs going on there. When did you decide, okay, this is real. We need to turn it into a real band. Well, not a real band. That's probably a, that's not, I don't mean that disparaging a little bit, but we need to now I'm focus on. a real on, boy now. <laughs> right. No, but. No, I, I, I know what you're saying, Mitch. And it's just funny because the original incarnation of Fozzie was much more of, of what Steel Panther is doing nowadays. And it's like, shit. If we would have kept up on that side, we could be as big as the Panther is right now. 
But, um, you know, there's two different Fozzies, I say. It's just like, just like there's two different Panteras. There's the original incarnation of Pantera, which was more of a priest Van Halen thing. Then they got Phil and Samuel and became the, uh, the the Pantera that we know and love. It's like that with Fozzie, too. We started just as a fun thing. Rich and I were playing in a cover band, and because it was Rich from Stuck Mojo and Chris from the, from the WWE, there was like a bidding war from record companies. We got signed by Johnny Zazula, uh, as I'm sure any metal fan would know, is the guy who signed Metallica and Anthrax and you know Raven and all these bands. He signed Fozzie in 2000 to, to do this cover band thing. He thought it was genius, and I was like, really? So we came up with a Blues Brothers type of a thing, uh, you know, w- traveling Wilburys, Spinal Tap, Alter Egos. But what happened was, um, after the Happenstance Project came out, we got an offer to do the Howard Stern show when Howard was doing his Battle of the Bands where he claimed that his celebrity band was better than any other celebrity band in the world. So he had on, I can't remember, Doug Flutie and Tina Yothers and uh, Corey Feldman. And then we had our chance. And I was like, listen, we can't go in there pretending to be different characters and wearing costumes. and Let's just be ourselves. We went in there. We played our song to kill a stranger. We kicked ass. Um, we morally beat Howard to the point where he said, I'm never doing this again. You guys killed me but because it's my show. Of course, I'm going to win but I'm never doing it again. I'm retiring my band. And that's when we're like, listen, we can really do something with this. We're a great rock and roll band. Rich and I had great chemistry. We had a lot of fun, which is important. And then um, we did the All That Remains record. And then there was about a four-year gap where there just wasn't a lot of stuff going on. We went in different directions. And then Rich and I reconvened in 2009 and said, listen, if we're going to do this, let's do it all the way. Let's make this a priority. I was finishing up being a full-time uh, performer in the WWE and Rich had finished up with Stuck Mojo and all the different things he'd been doing. And that's when I consider like the real version of Fozzie started with the Chase and the Grail record, leading into Sin and Bones, leading into Do You Want to Start a War, leading into to Judas, where we are now. And you can see the trajectory of the band and just how much we've grown in the last seven years to becoming, I mean, we're, 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 we're a small fish in a big pond now, and we're growing towards being a medium fish in the big pond. And, you know, like I said, and we'll continue to grow until we're the big fish in the big pond, and that's, that's the goal. And you can see the upside for the band now more than ever, especially with all the experience we have. Like if we would have had, you know, I'll say a top 10 song five years ago, maybe we would have been ready for it. But now we are, we know how to handle it. We know how hard it is. We know how to entertain a crowd. We know how to put on a show. You know, I know how to to go into a radio station and, and charm the DJs and the program directors in a good way. So, I mean, I think rock and roll is looking for a new rock band with rock stars and with age not really mattering as much anymore, there's, there's no there's no the rock stars that I see in a business as big as big of a of of, a, of, a, of an attitude of being a rock star as, as Christian Eric and Fozzie. We want to be Van Halen in 1979. That's what we do on stage. We have a great time. We make sure that people have fun, which is almost a dirty word in rock and roll. Uh, and we treat it with uh, with respect. We don't take ourselves seriously in a good way. There's a lot of fun when you go see Fozzie, and that comes yeah. directly from Van Halen. Back in the day, when it was just more of like a vaudeville cabaret show that just got the fucking shit rocked out of you as well. Yeah, and 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 I do want to get to all that remains because that's the first album that I ever got into contact with um, Fozzie. But uh, I just have to go for this quote from Happenstance when you were doing press. You said, "You know what Wasps stands for? It stands for we are stupid people because we stole Fozzie's songs." That's the greatest quote you've ever given. That is so, Mongoose McQueen. Uh, that, what a great quote. Um, but okay. Um, all that remains. 
So here I am as a reporter all these years ago, back in 2005, and this album shows up on my desk, and they said, give it a listen, do you want to interview the guy? And, you know, you read the press release, and you say, blah, 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 and it says wrestler. And given my age, I look back to the wrestling albums, the junkyard dog (laughs) doing grab then cakes and Jimmy Hart, and and you go, oh, come on, this has got to be hocus pocus, right? Right. And, and and I think we did an interview, and but that perception, was that hard in the beginning for you to get over that yeah. perception of, oh, he's just a wrestler, this is just, you know, Captain Lou Albano doing a song? Yeah. or Okay, so so talk to me yeah. about that, and how, how did you get over it? Because when you look at Mongoose McGween saying stuff about Wasp, you go, okay, this really is just Hulk Hogan doing, <laughs> right? We've done everything wrong. Uh, okay. to make it in a rock and roll band. But yet here we are, like I said, you know, we're the biggest songs in the country right now, uh, playing sold out shows across the States. We started as a, you know, with a mockumentary under assumed names with a backstory, with a name like Fozzie, uh, with a wrestler in the band. It's like all of these things you're thinking, this ain't going to last a day. And here we are 17 years later, bigger than we've ever been in our entire careers with, this huge other next level basically beckoning at our doorstep. And I think, you know, because, I mean, first of all, Fozzy, the name, it's, it's, you know, it's got so much more character than if we would have called it like Walls of Jericho or something like that. Like that sounds like every other, you know, power metal band or whatever it may be. Um, Fozzy stands out, good or bad, it stands out. Uh, from a chanting standpoint, it is the easiest name to chant at a rock and roll show. And in between every song, I don't care who we're playing with, if we're headlining, if we're supporting, if we're first on the bill or last, people chant Fozzie in between every song. Okay, so we got that going for us. Then you go through the list of band names. There's only three cool band names in the history of the world. Anthrax, Slayer, and uh, I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure if there's any other ones. But you look at like the big Def Leppard. Analyze that if you just got, a, uh, got that across your desk. Def Leppard, it's a Def like it's a leopard that can't hear. Uh, and if you, need, if you pretend that there's a new album by a band called Sit Cougar, you'd be like, what? Or if it's Corn with a K. Okay, you just get a new band with a, with a band called Carrot with a K. Or here's Hug with two Gs. You know, um, all of those bands, whether it's Kiss or Metallica or The Beatles or Red Hot Chili Peppers or Black Eyed Peas, they're kind of dumb, you know, chicken foot. But who cares? After you get into the band, it's, it's just a name. And that's kind of what's happened with Fozzie. It's like, it's our name. And it's a great name because it stands out. It's easy to chant. And there's a brand behind it. So, um, and then the wrestling thing, I mean, yeah, it was really hard. I had to work twice as hard right. uh, to get people's respect. To, you know, you really, you really had to over the years. And had to sing even better than, than most singers to get that respect. And I'm kind of in the same category as Taylor Momsen from Pretty Reckless or uh, a Jared Leto from 30 Seconds to Mars, who wins an Oscar, then goes and plays a sold-out show at the Hollywood Bowl. I mean, you can do it, but you just, like once again, you can't care or give a shit what people think. And either it's good music or it's bad music. Every band has a gimmick. Kiss wears makeup. Uh, Slipknot has masks. Audio Slave was a combination of Soundgarden and Rage Against the Machine. Great. Fozzie has Jericho in it. Awesome. You go and listen to it, and either then it's good or it's bad. That that gimmick gets you one listen, and that's it. Yeah. And either it's good music or it's bad music, and after that it doesn't matter who's in the band. 
uh, and then you just have to embrace it. I think now that the tide has kind of turned where people know my band, I think they embrace the fact that Jericho is in it. Because I can you know, entertain a crowd like no other, frontman-wise, because of all the experience I have doing that. So once you kind of get over that hump, then everybody joins in behind you. Then it's not a big deal, but it does take a while to climb that mountain for sure. It really does. And and what I like in your attitude and demeanor is that you didn't take it as because I, I I know the 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 reviews of all that remains and stuff. They were all sort of rolling their eyes at you, going, "Oh come on, wrestling dude, come on." And yet you took it as motivation, like, "Oh yeah, I, I I'll show you what I can do." And so that that well, that's yeah. And it's funny that the people that embraced the band first were uh, certain critics, like Martin Popov. Um, I'm sure you know Martin. Of course I know Martin. He, he, yeah, he's a famous, famous Canadian rock journalist. Mm-hmm. He put all that remains in his uh, top records of the year and still says it's his favorite Fozzie album and one of his all-time favorite albums, period. Uh, Malcolm Dome um, from England, crying Metal Hammer sounds, that guy's been around since the 70s. I believe it was Sinning Bones who said this is the best album of the year, by far, 2012. Yep. Critic, certain critics were behind us at first, but musicians brought it right away. And I remember when we did the press release for All That Remains, we sent it out to all of the friends that I had made, from Michael Sweet to Zach Wilde to Mark Tremonti and Miles Kennedy, um, everybody in between, Marty Sweet and whoever, whoever we knew in the business, to Charlie from Anthrax, and to give us a quote about the album and got all of these amazing... Uh, you know, positive quotes from, from people that, that dug what we were doing. So the reason for that is, is that the band is good. I mean, Rich Ward is not a better guitar player on the planet. And I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about from shredding and weedily deedly, but from a modern day John Sykes, David Gilmore riff writing perspective, no one could fucking touch Rich Ward. So when we had that, plus, the, you know, Frank Fonser and how they click in, all, all the guys that we have in the band, Billy and Polly, professionals through and through, I mean, Paul DeLeo used to play bass with fucking Billy Joel. Couldn't get any better than that. Nope. You know? uh, Billy Joel ain't taking no hacks on stage. So that is another reason why we've got to where we got, because this band is a great rock and roll band. And we all have the same uh, mindset when it comes to stage presence. Is that we are the show. You know, we don't have spiders flying from the ceilings and, you know, giant you know, Lady Justice statues behind us. We have us. That's it. And that goes a long way when you have the energy from the stage that translates to the people that are watching. That's another thing that Fozzie does that no one else does. So there are a lot of elements to it that help us get over this hump of the wrestling thing. What's like I say to this day, the only people that don't like Fozzie are the people that have never listened to, that, listened to us. The, the people that sort of just poo-poo it because, oh, it, there's a wrestling guy. Now, now by the way, did, did I, do I score points for having mentioned Coco Beware? Because that, that was pretty decent right there. That was top quality. Um, <laughs> that was, come on, that was, that was some good, uh, good re- wrestling references. Um, but re- uh, rock and wrestling, the Rager at Sea. Uh, you've got this cruise coming up. And um, talk to me about that because it, it's never been done. We've done all the classic rock cluise, cruises mm-hmm. and the Kiss cruises. And, and people go out there and they hang out with the bands. But, but yours is similar but different. Um, talk to me about taking well, that on. Yeah, once again, Mitch, I just I can't help myself sometimes. When I get an idea in my head that I know can work, I'm going to do it, you know, no matter what. And we we got invited to play the Kiss Cruise. Um, and just to finish up what you said before about the Paul Stanley thing, when he gave me that quote, 
And then I kind of lived this career because of Paul's quote. And then indirectly, Paul and I become friends to where I asked him to do the forward. Yeah, having Paul do the forward is, is amazing. But it's also full circle. It's very, it's very cool. Like, okay, it started with Paul, and now he's bringing the forward. So, from a fan standpoint, but from a life standpoint, that's the coolest thing. And that's also what the Kiss Cruise was like. I mean, that was technically being on tour with Kiss, and that to me was unbelievably cool. As you know, Fozzie opening for Kiss on their cruise was a pretty badass moment. Probably even better than having Paul write my forward. But um, so we did the cruise. We came off. It was just the best time. There's so much cool stuff going on. And I called my manager and I was like, I want to do uh, a rock and wrestling cruise. It's what I'm known for. It's what I do. And I think, I think we can make this work. And like you said, yes, there's all these music cruises, but there's not a wrestling cruise. And there was a few in the nineties, but they were really lame. It was just kind of guys wandering around. I wanted to do wrestling on the ship, on the boat at sea, the same way that kiss played alive in its entirety at sea on the boat. They didn't pull over to a port to do it. They did it on the boat. So how do you do that? Well, who do you talk to? So I figured, well, I'll start at the top. Six Man is the company that promotes the Kiss Cruise. If it's good enough for Kiss, once again, if it's good enough for Adam Carolla, it's good enough for me. So I go and talk to them. We have meetings upon meetings upon meetings. And two years later, after engineers going on the boat and analyzing whether the ring can stay on and whether they can support the ring on the boat, I'm like, fuck, Kiss's stage was on there. I'm sure the ring doesn't weigh as much as Kiss's stage does. And if Kiss isn't moving around and falling off the side of the stage, it's not going to happen with guys wrestle either. And, you know, we even lost the boat at one point. We were ready to announce it, and then suddenly the boat got taken away because somebody swooped in from, I don't know, McDonald's or some shit and took the boat away from us like a day before we were supposed to announce. But it all worked out for the best, as it always does. And here we are with the, the Rock and Wrestling Ranger at sea, getting ready to, to, to set sail October 27th, 2018, not 2017, which people keep buzzing about. I wish I could go, but I don't have money. I didn't have enough notice. It's 2018. Read the poster. <laughs> um, and I just put together this, this, this crazy lineup of like Hall of Fame wrestlers and, and the biggest wrestling company in the world that's not WWE called Ring of Honor. They're doing a tournament at sea where the winner gets a, a world title shot. And then I went to the rock and roll side of things. And the amount of money that rock bands want to do a cruise is astronomical. It's completely insane. Like, you know, $200,000 for a band that probably draws $1,500 if they come to your town. And I, I was like, you know what? That's bullshit. And I'm going to completely reconfigure that model. And once again, I'm talking to uh, the guy I was like, kind of my mentor confiding was Paul Sam with the Kiss Cruise. And he was like, you know, you're selling a concept, not a band. You know, there's not many bands that are going to sell tickets for you. Maybe Alice Cooper or something like that. But Alice, obviously, he's, he's in a different stratosphere. And I get that. But then I started thinking, hey, why should I waste money bringing on a band that, whether it's, you know, I don't know, band A or whether it's band B, band B is going to be affordable and band A is not. Is it really going to matter? Because it's the concept. So that's when I just said, I'm fuck it. I'll put Fozzie on top. We're bigger than we've ever been. Next year will be even bigger. I'll put on, uh, some, I'll make it like a great package. Fozzie, King, and then Phil Campbell called me. When Lenny passed away, Phil started Phil Campbell and the, and the, uh, and the Bastard Sons. So that's basically, you know, the, the lineage of Motorhead continues. So it's like fucking Fozzie, King, and, and you know, the, the legacy of Motorhead on the cruise from the, from the rock and roll side, along with a lot of other great bands. 
And I've got some of my friends that are like top level comedians like Jim Brewer and Ron Funches and Brad Williams. Uh, and, you know, my paranormal shows coming to do those type of things and throw some hot chicks on there. And suddenly we got a rock and roll party that I want to make an annual cruise just like Kiss does. So, um, so far, so good, man. Like I said, we're over a year away and every single day I'm looking at reports and advertising and blah, blah, blah. So I definitely have my work cut out for me for the next year or so. But, um, you know, like I said, if I didn't try it, I'd always be wondering what if, and I don't like being that in that position. So if there's something I think I can make it work and it might take a long time to get it up and running, but, but, uh, I did it, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. And, and, I, and I notice you've got a lot of the great podcasts on there. If you, there's always room for a rock podcaster, by the way. Just, just throwing <laughs> in a, um, <laughs> uh, Quickly here on the Canadian side, uh, CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, runs uh, a website like all corporations do these days. And they have the But I'm Chris Jericho, these sort of webisodes or whatever you want to call them, these, these episodes of you. Uh, talk to me about that, and 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 I'm I don't know if if you're outside of Canada if you can get into the website and see these things, but uh, talk to me about being an actor and and putting this this little sort of but I'm Chris Jericho uh, show together, and and what is the plan? I mean, would you like to be sort of like The Rock and be a Hollywood uh, action hero or just a Hollywood actor? Um, well, I mean. Uh... It's funny because I got so much stuff going on, but I always loved acting. I mean, that's basically what you do in wrestling. It's all acting. It's a character that I play. And to an extent, even singing, I mean, you have to sell those songs. There's a lot of acting in there. And if you don't believe me, just watch Freddie Mercury or watch Paul Stanley or Alice or Ozzy become the characters that they are on stage. Um, but I'm Chris Jericho. Once again, Mitch, I mean, it's, it's, it's the same old story with Jericho. It's an idea that I thought of when I left the WWE in 2005 to go study acting. Not necessarily to become a movie star, but I just wanted to learn the craft. All these ridiculous things happened to me, and I started thinking, well, what if, what if I got blackballed from wrestling? Like I'd, I'd, I'm going to these auditions where there's like 30 other guys who look just like me, and we're, we're, you know, you have one line, like, these pretzels are making me thirsty. Hey, thank you. And you're like, but I'm Chris Jericho. Like, I've got a whole fan base. Like, this is all I get? I thought, what if I got you know, blackballed from wrestling, and all I had was, was acting, and I had to do this, and I had to kind of, you know, eat crow on a daily basis and, and have, what, if, what if I had an attitude that I am I'm hot shit but you're not in this world so I came up with an idea of doing a show called But I'm Chris Jericho and worked it with a couple dudes that I knew and fucking eight years later it gets sold and we do ten episodes for, for you know, digital episodes and it wins awards in LA and Vancouver and Toronto we went to the Cannes Film Festival and won an award in France but then nothing happened to it didn't get picked up. There was nothing more to it. And that was the end of it. Four years later, CBC, who's the biggest network in Canada, wants to do more episodes. They're, they're buying the show, basically. So it took eight years to silent, four, eight years to do the first episode, uh, first season, four years to do the second season. So maybe we'll get the third season in two years. But um, it's a really funny show. And it's CBC is going all in. They're putting ads for it on actual you know, CBC television and uh, I think we got something really cool. So hopefully it goes, and I can add that, you know, of, of, of a comedic action, and you know, see what happens in that aspect. But it's something that's very easy for me to do, and once again, it's something that basically done my whole career. It's just sometimes certain things take longer to get started than others, and with all the other things that I have going on, 
if Steven Spielberg called me tomorrow and said, you know, I want you to be the lead in, you know, ET part two, I don't know if I have the time to do it. So uh, I'm sure when the time is right, once again, you mentioned serendipity earlier, I believe in that a lot. Uh, I think that uh, some more stuff will come up in the acting world for sure. Yeah, I certainly hope so because I've watched those episodes and, and they're actually extremely funny. And I could see them being developed either into a half-hour show on like yeah. NBC or CBS, but even more so, I could see it as being a sort of two-hour movie with just these sort of comical... Inter- anyway, it's well, it's well put together. Um, where do I want to go next? So we're, we're running out of time, right? Uh, and you know, 45 minutes and no, uh, no wrestling questions. How, how impressive is that? Um, uh, okay, too much research here. But I, I have so much. Re- I have so many we- uh, little. Um... Well, let's talk about the record. Let's talk about Judas. Yeah. So let's talk about. Yeah. Let's let's finish on this then with with Judas. So so where do we go from here then with, with the album? It, it's it's obviously it's out. It's October. Um, how long is is the sort of the cycle on this? And are you looking forward to like let's do this for two years and let's get right back to the next album, or is this like okay? I'm too busy with all this other stuff. This is going to no, sit. I mean, for... Okay. Fozzie's a priority, and that's one thing that, that, that is very important, is that, you know, I do these other things. There's a lot of projects kind of culminating all at the same time. But Fozzie's been a priority since 2005. Like I said, I see a lot of potential for, for this band, for the growth of the band. And the good news is, okay, with all the, all the, the work that Judas did, um, that wasn't even the, the unanimous choice for the first single from, from the from the inner circle of Fozzie. I mean, some people thought that Painless was a better first single. That's, that'll be the second single now. Uh, others thought there's a song called Elevator or Weight of My World or those type of tunes. Um, but the thing is, is that like I think that Judas has done so much to open the doors for people, like I said, that would never give us the time of day before, that now they're very exciting. Fozzie's becoming like this 17-year overnight sensation. But the good news is, it was, it was when Judas finally reaches its peak, whether that's a month or two months from now, who knows when, I think Painless will step right through and knock people's socks off once again. And now it's a very uh, open arms for Fozzie type of atmosphere. So it wouldn't surprise me if Painless goes even higher on the charts than Judas does because the story's already been told and the doors have already been opened. And I think with this record, what we wanted to do when we worked with John Landers, like I mentioned, we wanted to do like an album like Hysteria or Appetite for Destruction or Kick by NXS, which people forget about as being an all-time classic record, of just having single after single after single. And rock radio still has a lot of pull and a lot of influence. And we thought, what if there's a world where we could do five or six singles? Now, I don't know if that's even possible anymore with record companies being the way they are, radio being, but let's have the option. Let's have an option where let's say let's say the record wanted the company wanted to do eleven singles. Let's write eleven singles, and not try and do it by any type of formula. We're very diverse. We're very much you know disciples of David Bowie and U2 and Guns N' Roses and Zeppelin and the Beatles, bands that would change their sound uh, if the time was right, if the idea was right. And we have that. I mean, there's a bunch of different diversity on this record, and I think there's a lot of quality songs that a would be great on the radio and b would be amazing live. So. Yes, we want to tour as, as long as we can, and we're not going to settle. You know, we just got an offer yesterday to open for a really big band, but for really minimal money. And it's like, it's not going to help us. Let's continue to do it our way 
because we realized earlier, uh, about three or four years ago, the only chance we have to get to that next level is do things completely our way. And that is it. So let's just do it our way. And whatever happens, happens. And that's what we're going to continue to do. So I'm really excited about the next year and a half, uh, two years, whatever they do for Fozzie and this record and what I call the Judas effect of all these doors that have been opened because of Judas. And it'll be interesting to see uh, how far we can go with it. We know this is our chance. So this is, this is our time to really get to, to that next level and get locked in there. Yeah, and, uh, I, we're not that and I think it all it started with the last album also, Do You Want to Start a War? Yeah. That one, you know, that's where you came out and you played Heavy Montreal and stuff. And there was this perception like, hey, this band is is moving up and getting to that. Um, and I, I know you're running out of time, but I'll ask you this. In terms of songwriting, um, how do you see yourself and, and how do you grow your confidence in songwriting? Because... Uh, you know, you're you're the wrestler, you're the actor, you're you're the podcaster. But but, how do you see yourself as the songwriter? Well, I mean, I just you know, so for this record, like I said, usually I write Sarah, you know, thirteen, fourteen sets of lyrics, send them over to Rich. He kind of Frankenstein's them into the parts that he's thinking, and then we do some rewrites, and that's kind of how it always went. With Johnny, it was a different thing. I wrote my 14 pieces, and he used, I think, three of my tunes are on this record. Um, and that's okay. Like, you know, it, it's all about the song. Um, and that's one thing that, you, that we realize. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, who writes the song. I still have to sing it. I still have to sell it. And a couple of times in the record, it was almost, I felt like Getty Lee singing Neil Peart lyrics. Like, what the fuck's he talking about? Like, how am I going to? How do I wrap my mind around this to make it my own? And then, you know, I would sit down with Johnny or Rich and whoever written some, some words, just like they sat down with me. There's a song called Words With Way on the record, which is about my childhood home, the street I grew up on, and then the passing of my mother. And they were like, well, what, how does this, what is this song like? What do you envision this song being? And I was like, well, it should be really epic and big. And, you know, um, and, and that's kind of what we did with that song. So, I think whoever has the kernel of the idea will kind of sit back and go, what does this mean? You know, what does Judas mean? What is it about? Well, Judas is about making the wrong decision, even when you know it's the wrong decision, but you do it anyway. You're betraying yourself, you know, the Judas in my mind. And that could be, you know, having that last shot at the bar when you know you're going to throw up if you have it, or eating that last piece of pizza when you know it's going to make you have to unbutton your top, you know, jeans cheating on your you know on your girlfriend or whatever it may be you know it's wrong but you do it anyways and that's something that everybody can relate to yep. um you know so those type of things I, I think as a songwriter um it's important but as a singer it's really important for me to speak to whoever wrote those lyrics and find out what it means to them so then i can kind of encapsulate it into my own you know uh emotion in my own wheelhouse and then sing it properly and that's what I really loved about this record. There's a lot of songs on it that I had nothing to do with the writing with. But as the singer, I have to sell them to the world. I'm the one who has to you know, set up a table and you know, put on a sandwich board and say, Hear ye, hear ye. This song is called Painless. Uh, killing me one breath at a time. What does that mean? Like, Who's doing that to you? And then you kind of get into it a little bit more. So um, it's been a really cool time that that record, Recording Judas, was the most challenging in a good way, not just from a vocal standpoint, because those melody lines are not easy, but from a, a encapsulating them and selling them standpoint. And I think it made me a better singer and a better front man as a result.
Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you're out of time, so we, we haven't gotten to uh, Dancing with the Star, your love for Vanilla Ice, <laughs> or the Winnipeg Jets, but... We'll keep that. And That'll be for part two, man. For part, part two, and, and, and we all know that the Habs, the Montreal Canadiens, are a much better team than the Jets. Well, That's... I mean, and we all know that the Habs and the Jets are the same boat. They haven't won shit in about 45 years. <laughs> it's going to happen anytime soon. Oh, I know. Poor, poor Canada. In fact, I don't, well, I think, you know what? As Canadians, I think we can all sort of stand behind the Edmonton Oilers at this point. That's that's the think, one yeah, hope. Again. Yeah. Again, well, this you guys won in 93, so at least you have that on your side. That's not too bad. It's not too bad, but I, I, I don't see your team or my team getting anywhere close to a cup in the next five years, but I think the Edmonton Oilers, we can stand behind Connor McDavid and say, yeah, that's Canada's great hope right there. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, that. but it's good, though, man. Like, listen, when the playoffs start, when those Canadian teams get whittled down and end up getting kicked out, I always lose interest. So if the Oilers go all the way, I will support them. Yeah, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Chris, always a pleasure, and uh, we will definitely need to do a part two. Absolutely, Mitch. Thank you so much, and congratulations. And uh, you're, you're a hustler, and I love seeing the uh, different interviews that you get every week, so keep up the good work. Thank you, sir, and thank you for the opportunity. Cheers, man. Talk Cheers. To you soon. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Mitch here. Are you in the market for a new car and want to see what others have paid? Well, in order to feel comfortable that you are getting a fair price, you need pricing context. Information that empowers you to feel confident. With True Car, you will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now you know what a fair price is, you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by TrueCar certified dealers for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. True Car users save an average of $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents when it happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn, I, I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back and a very big, big thank you to Chris Jericho, not only for the interview and, of course, the great music that is contained on the album Judas, 
but for the opportunity awarded me to be here with you on the Jericho Network doing this show. Just absolutely fantastic and absolutely wonderful that he's uh, reached out to me and have me do this show for you. And then, of course, take the time to do an incredible, incredible um, interview. And uh, if you can, go check out the But I'm Chris Jericho show on the uh, CBC Canadian Broadcasting Network. I do not know if they are geo-locked, you know, if you can't access it from outside of Canada. But if you can, you absolutely have to go watch those episodes. They're, they're hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Anyhow, um, let us move on to interview number two. We have got famed singer Joey Tempest and... For many, many years, they were the final countdown band, but trust me, they are so much more than that. When they started re-releasing albums back in 2004 with Start From The Dark, um, they just became better. They're a better band. You know, a lot of the bands that we, that we love and we go see the shows, we all say, oh man, if, if you could just make an album like you did in the 80s, and oh, come on, you were so great then, I remember. And this band, Europe, has done it backwards. Their best stuff is the last six albums, and Walk the Earth is absolutely no exception. Um, the band just keeps getting better and better and better, and so um, do check that out. Um, I'm going to keep the talk-ups uh, very tight this time because I've got so much content. So uh, here he is, without fail, the one, the only, singer Joey Tempest. We are speaking with singer Joey Tempest of the band Europe, the new album is Walk the Earth, and uh, Joey, always a pleasure to, uh, to speak with you. I, uh, I go back a long way, having first seen the band open for Def Leppard, I guess, in 1988, must have been, back in the, the States. Yeah, we, we, yeah, th- yeah, Mitch, great to be on again. Yeah, we, uh, we toured with them in 88, when they would pour some sugar on me with number one, and we were invited for a special guest on that t- summer tour, and I think that's the first time we, we made contact, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was such a great show. And, and the, what you were doing at the time, and I'll get to Walk the Earth, but I just want to reminisce. You would start off the show yeah, with yeah, Final yeah. Countdown. Then you would run the entire set, and you would sort of finish with Final Countdown. And it sort of made it as if the in-between was a jam. So it's as if you broke down the song into a long 45-minute jam and then came back. I, I just thought that was brilliant. And I still think, all these years later, that that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of cool. We put a tag on, I think maybe it was Rock Tonight, I don't know, the last song, and then we put a, the, the end, just the end tag of the final countdown on at the end. I was kind of jamming into that. Yeah, that was kind of cool. That was kind of cool. So speaking of cool, uh, Europe Rock Walk the Earth. Uh, I've been listening to it for, for the last couple of weeks. I've been sent in advance. It is absolutely fantastic, and... I want to talk about putting it together and, of course, the producer Dave Cobb and all that, but there, there has to be a certain um, what's the pride in the fact that after you came back from uh, the break, you know, 91 to 2004, and you, there was a few things, you've just gotten better and better, and, and most bands at this stage in the career are slowly getting worse and worse and worse, but start from the dark to secret society to last look of Eden to bag of bone to war. It's as if you're climbing a staircase and just, you haven't reached the top yet. And so uh, just talk to me about putting this album together and, and, and how do you stay so focused and keep just pumping out a better album with a better album with a better album? 
<laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. So 2003, we met up at the keyboard player's apartment in Stockholm and said, let's, let's do this again. Everybody's been missing it and playing with different artists, touring with different artists. And, but we said one thing. We said, let's just do it for us. No inside influences. Let's just go on a journey, learn about recording techniques, studios, produce, try to sniff out the best producer out there and just move on lyrically and have, try to have a blast and make it a fun job. And, and, always, and all five was, was agreeing. And we said, let's write more together. I used to write more in the beginning, but let's write more together and, and, in, and inspire each other. And uh, since, yeah, Bag of Bones, um, we've done six new albums now, but since Bag of Bones, World Kings, and now Walk the Earth, those three, we've just hit this stride where we, we tour a lot and then we go in and we, we two weeks in the studio and now we found a great producer with Dave as well. And, and all our experiences and everything just sort of pours out in those two weeks. And, and obviously we prepare, we have 10 songs that are sort of 80, 70% finished and Dave lifts them to, to the next level. Uh, it's just a journey, an adventure we're on, and, and it's kind of hard to explain. We, we call this album a miracle album because we listen to it and it's like, how did we do this? And Because we, it happens fast and we don't really know, we don't plan the records, uh, and it's, it's amazing that we're still here. But we, are, we feel lucky because we met when we were teenagers and now we're here and we feel lucky to have this job, so we work hard and everybody gives 100%, all five members, so I don't know. It's it's just something that's working at the moment. It really is. Now, you talk about you're doing this for yourselves and you're writing for yourselves and you're, you're you know you 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 learned the the studio techniques and it's all about for yourself. Do you look back at the years of Final Countdown, Out of This World, and and Prisoners in Paradise as sort of lost albums because you were you did have the influence of the record company saying that we need a radio hit, we need a video hit, we need an MT. Do you look back at those and say, damn it, if we had done it ourselves, we could have been much, or is it like, listen, it is what it is. You know, what are we going to do? Nah, it's, it's actually, we was a learning, we were in, in our 20s, it was learning curve for us and working with these great producers, Kevin Nelson on Final Countdown, even before the Final Countdown, Wings for Tomorrow with Leif Mosses, who, who, who worked at Polar Studios in Stockholm. Uh, he had worked with, Led Zeppelin been over there and done some into the outdoor recording. Scorpions had been there, done some Love at First Thing recordings. I think it was those albums, I'm pretty sure. They've been in that studio, and he's been an engineer with them. We got to work with this guy, and we did Wings of Tomorrow, second album. We started to handle writing a little bit better, and we started touring in Scandinavia and Japan. And uh, uh, It's just been a, a, a long journey. Uh, the, the first period, I have to say, was just... It just happened. We we met Kevin Elson and we recorded Final Countdown. Final Countdown's got an organic feel to it. Uh, it. It's not that overproduced. It's kind of warm feeling. Kevin did a great job, um, and we learned a lot from him. And then Ron Everson on Out of This World, we le- we did that in Olympic Studios in in London, and we we learned a lot from Ron too, especially about vocals. He's very very good at producing vocals and recording vocals. And and of course, there was some recording techniques in the eighties that. There was a lot of toys being thrown into studios. There was a lot of money around, and a lot of digital toys and compressors and and and, uh, and digital uh, keyboards and and uh, you know it, it. Some people took advantage of that, and some maybe some productions became a bit overblown and 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 so forth. But uh, other than that, it was learning for us. And and then we went to do obviously um, 
prisoners in LA in Burbank and, and uh, with Bill Hill, and, and that was also a learning curve. But that was also towards the end, and we started thinking that, hang on a second, we can probably do this slightly different. We started thinking, I remember 1991, Nirvana just came out, and we thought, you know, we liked the, the expression of, of Stone Temple Pilots, Nirvana, and, and those bands. It was kind of a raw expression that we kind of liked, and we saw Guns N' Roses played Budokan uh, the night before we did in, in, in Tokyo. We met, we met Guns N' Roses at Lexington Queen, I remember, and we went to see them play, and, we, and we, they went to see us, and we had this, this big production, and, 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 and they, just, they didn't have a set list. I mean, a few, few, few light cans, and, and it was kind of a, 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 an opener for the future for us. We were thinking, hang on a second, you know, there's, there's other way of expressing this. So after the long break, we, we just came back with a new, fresh outlook, and we wanted to do it our way, you know. Yeah, and, and, and you did great. And, of course, Kevin has, of course, done stuff with Mr. Big and Journey. Just an incredible producer. Oh, yeah. Uh, just just oh, yeah. absolutely fantastic. Um, in fact, he's sort of like the fifth member of Mr. Big, the, the way he's done his work. But um, let's talk Dave Cobb because, to me, that's a very interesting choice of producer because you look at some of the bands that he's associated with, and they're not what you would consider to be traditional rock bands. In fact, they're more... In fact, country, some of them, with the exception of maybe Rival Sons. Talk to me about what he brings to you and what do you take away from him? Because, it, you know, you, when you're talking Shooter Jennings, Miranda Lambert, Zach Brown, yeah. Yeah. and then you throw Europe in there, you go, hmm, something doesn't belong, and yet it does. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about yeah, that it's, choice. It's kind of a strange... He does it for the love of, of rock music. He is part of Dave that really enjoys... I think he's a big Sabbath fan also. I think he's a Led Zeppelin to Purple fan as well, but he has that in him. And uh, I think secretly he would love to do more of that, but he's such, he's such a great producer of, all, of, of singers, songwriters, and singers, and great songwriters, and, and uh, Jason Isbell, or you know, stuff like that. It's amazing what he does. But what I've learned talking to him, I mean, he captures these people in a kitchen with a recorder or whatever. He, he just want to capture them and find the feeling and the vibe. So uh, that's why he can work in any field, because he, he, he wants to capture the vibe of the singer and the band and make it greater, make it better. So what, how we use Dave, we, we, we met him on World Kings and uh, we were kind of this is the first time we worked with him, but we loved his the drum sound the overall recording of, of Arrival Sun stuff. So backstage, I think it was a UK gig, we told our manager, could you call him? Because we love his productions. I think, we think he's one of the, the best around now, preserving and pushing forward the best way of recording rock and roll. So they called him and he said, yeah, well, sure, I'd be interested in working with you. I used to listen to those guys. I used to play drums uh, to their tracks. He, was, he used to be a drummer, I think, as well. So we invited him. He came to Stockholm and... and we sort of we invited him as a co-writer on a few tracks as well. He he said maybe I can contribute something here and maybe we can try this here and and we were like this is the first time we invite anybody to do anything. So, but we we said okay let's let's try this this guy and and it really worked out. He lifted War of, the song War of Kings. He lifted that song and, and a few others much much better than our rehearsal demo and he really brought it to life recording wise and sound wise too so when we were about to i got an opening in abbey road studios and i called the guys 
listen, I want you to come to UK to record. I've, I've been trying to get you here for so many years. Why don't you come this time? You know, uh, I have an opening here through a friend, Abbey Road. It's difficult to get in there for two weeks because everybody wants to be in there, but we have two weeks here. So I called Dave as well because he, I think he like wanted us to come to Nashville. But and I mentioned Abbey Road and said, oh yeah, that will be that will be cool. You know, they still have a lot of old vintage gear there, and we can mix it with the new stuff. But yeah, yeah, let's do this. So we decided then. You know, I talked to the guys. Let's let's use Dave again because he's he's become an, almost a member of the band. And so what we do with Dave is us, we have ten songs pretty much, and then we have two weeks. We have ten songs. We meet Dave. He hasn't heard one single song. On the first day, he will listen to the first song, the rehearsal demo that we did, you know, and he will he will sit down by himself and he will listen to it. And then he will come to us and say, listen, why don't we do it like this? Let's sit around in a circle and talk about it. And maybe we can start it like this. And here I feel like maybe you can write a new part and maybe I can write a new part and we'll do it together. And then maybe the outro could be like this. And and at the mean, at the same time, he has full... Uh, knowledge of the recording techniques and, and equipment and together with Eddie Spears, the engineer. So it's all becomes like, and the next day is the second song and he listens and he, he lifts it further and we work it out together. And yeah, so he, he those two weeks, he is a band member and, and, and we trusted him even more on Walk the Earth. He, he, he was in co-writing on many more songs on this one than War of Kings and yeah, it's 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 a pleasure. He has a touch. He knows how to record rock and roll, but he also understands. He plays guitar and drums, and he's also uh, I think he worked a lot with Brendan O'Brien as well, learning about music and recording music. And you know, it's a, it's a privilege to work with a talent like that. He's one of the best out there, I think. Yeah, I agree, and and I do think that his background in country music serves a band like you and Rival Sons because country. Uh, doesn't do a lot of bells and whistles. It's plug in your guitar and your drums and your fiddle and whatever, and let's record it. There's not all, all kinds of production value in, in the sense of we're going to have all. No. And that's that's exactly sort of the, the yeah. ethos and the mentality that Rival Sons and Europe need. Yeah, he goes for the essence of, of the artist. He says he like he, he needs a good singer in the band or an artist he wants to produce. He says that straight out. Yeah, I want I wanted to have a good singer, but. I, and then we talk about the songs and the lyrics and everything. But for some reason, he just captures Jason Isbell so well. And I don't think anybody else can. And he captures Europe better than anybody in many years. And he's, uh, he's got that. He makes the band better than it is. He, he, but he doesn't change the band. Like you said, he doesn't. He's not one of those producers that just puts his stamp on it and starts overdubbing, starts fixing everything. He wants the band to be what what they are, but he can contribute with some recording techniques or maybe add a bit here or suggest arrangements and also create a vibe in the studio. He's a great hand. You know, he, he's funny. He's got stories and, and he blends in. And, you know, it's all those things that makes him great. Yeah, it really does. Now, uh, I've interviewed you many times and there was a time in the you know, late 90s, where you did A Place to Call Home, the Joey Tempest album, Azealia Place. And and I remember some of those conversations, or let me put it this way. My perception was that you were very happy to be on your own and having con- complete musical control and just being able to put out your art the way you wanted it put out. Um, first of all, is that a, was that a correct perception? Was that sort of your headspace back at that time? 
Yeah, it was on the first two, um, yeah. on, especially the ones you mentioned. A place to go home and a Zegar place. That was something I really, really wanted to do. I felt the 80s had been pushed to the limit, maybe becoming a bit one-dimensional. I felt like there's more to learn about lyrics and, and recording and just basic songwriting, three, yeah. three or four chords and just make it, make it talk. So I probably told you this, but I went into this research. I got everything from... Jackson Brown, Van Morrison, Neil Young, Bob Dylan. I went to all these shows, and I just wanted to learn more. And I think it helped. Um, but coming to the third solo album, I started missing the guys because it was also about chemistry and touring and the band soul that, was, that I grew up with. I was always in bands since I was probably 10 years old, my first band. And so I started missing. And John Norum was calling me. He sent his solo albums to me all the time, and... And the guys came to visit me. I lived in Ireland for a while, and, and they came to visit me. Ian and Mick came over there, and we we always talked about doing stuff together. But it was kind of an underlying feeling that we all wanted to get back together, <laughs> and and so it, so it happened, you know. Yeah, and and so it leads me to two questions. Question one is. Do you find yourself ever in that time and place where you just want to go back and do a solo album and just sort of have your own sort of artistic expression? Or is Europe as it is now so free to do what you want that you don't need that anymore? You know, is that desire gone or do you still see yourself doing a solo album in three years from now, five years from now, ten years from now? Well, it's a very interesting question since I've done the journeys. I did three albums, three solo albums, so it's very interesting question in that sense and I, I can't I mean uh, sit here and say I never think about it but the creative feeling in Europe now is such that every member can bring a song to rehearsal and every everything gets tried in rehearsal and we send demos to each other everybody writes together it's a really great environment I don't have to feel pressure like maybe in the very early days that oh the other guys don't write as much as I do because I was kind of early with writing songs. I mean, I loved writing songs. So it was a lot of songs that had to be written, a lot of work. And now, I mean, Mick, Mick come over here to London and we, we jam for a few days. We collect ideas. John Levin, the bass player, sends ideas. John Norm always sends two or three great riffs and we work on those. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing. It's great to have this sort of thing going on. And it feels creative. It, it feels like it's us and me as well. But, hmm, you know, a solo album, that's completely, you can completely immerse yourself and, and with yourself and, and do demos and work on it and have, you know, it, it's a kind of a big thing, though, for me, because that takes a lot of effort and time and, and headspace, too, and I don't see it. I don't see it in three years. I don't see it in five years. I, I don't see it. It's a, it's a lot of fun with Europe, and but it was a good question. But I don't see it. But I don't see it not happening. And it could happen because I met a lot of friends along the way in London, Sweden. I mean, one day to do something with just friends that I met up and just no pressure of any kind, and just jam and have a big party session in a big studio, you know, something like that. Those kind of thoughts come into my head sometimes, just to be with friends. And but Europe, we, we've known each other since we were teenagers, and this job is so cool because we know each other so long and we have the same background. We used to see Thin Lizzy, the Purple, when they came with Perfect Strangers, Rainbow, all that stuff together. We went to those shows together. So we have such a great foundation and 
we know each other so well now, so I don't see any other any other way of working at the moment. Yeah, and I was going to sort of follow that up was, you know, you know, are you fully, you know, are you fulfilled within Europe? And I think you just answered that because back in 95, yeah. 97, it just seemed like there was a little something missing to make you a complete, you know, you, you, you could, of course, do stuff with, with Europe and Prisoners in Paradise and all, but it was like, eh, yeah. jo- Joey needs to come out. And, and now it sounds yeah. as though it's been out and Europe it's is, been- yeah. Yeah, the last three albums, I have to say, I've been so... I call them miracle albums, because after, we, after we're done, they, they happen quite quickly, because we tour a lot, and then we go in and we usually just record for two weeks and then sort of fiddle around for another few weeks. But the last three albums, Bag of Bones, World Kings, and Walk the Earth, it's just... Uh, it's just I feel so proud of the band and, and, and that we're here. So these three albums have been so cool to do, and I, hopefully we'll continue. Now we're going to work walk the earth for a few years and and enjoy playing these songs live. So and then we'll, we'll talk again and see where we're at. Well, we'll see where we're at now. Um, you know, between Prisoners in Paradise and Start from the Dark, the band was was inactive. With you know, okay, there was a I think there was a show for the Millennium and stuff, but overall yeah. inactive with a few little bumps. Um, talk to me though about getting back together and there, there's one thing to get out there and to play a show a special show and do the big hits and then I'll go home but it's very different getting into the studio and putting down new music and, and I remember as a fan I got the album Start From The Dark from whatever the publicist was and, and, I, and, I, and I looked at it with a crooked eye and I sort of went okay really? and then I put it on and I went oh okay really now this is you know but from a yeah. from your perspective, though, what was the sort of the fears or the expectations? Because you were off for thirteen years, you might have just been completely. I mean, just talk to me about that. Getting back and saying, "Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to make new music." And okay, here we go. Talk to me about that period. Yeah, I know it. It was kind of uh, first of all, we wanted to do it. As I said, we met in two thousand three in Mick uh, Mick's apartment and talked about it and we talked about everything so we should write together we should do it for ourselves we shouldn't have we should do this journey ourselves and learn about it everything and just move on i think long term but um oh shit i lost my train of thought here what was mitch what was well well i I was talking so was there a fear going into it because you knew you were not going to go back and do the final countdown part two you knew that you were going to do music that was more to your original (laughs) that that winter when we brought Kevin Elson over, because we wanted a friend to record. We knew we were doing something different, and he sort of knew it too. I played some demos for him. He was like, okay, this is interesting. You know, I, I love to do it. I'll come over. And, yeah, that winter, nobody knew. I, I don't think we told people we were in the studio either, because it was like, this. we need to try this thing, and we need to work. We worked this winter with Kevin and, and, and see where it leads. And it's kind of a dark, unpolished album. It's heavy. It comes from a different place. It comes from John Norum was more detuned on his guitar, and he wrote more. He wrote quite a lot on Star from the Dark. A lot of those songs were his. I mean, he. It was a good thing that me and John hooked up again because he had some great new riffs, uh, and and uh, the song "Gotta Have Faith" and "Start from the Dark." Those two songs were the first two ideas he sent to me, and I worked on the lyrics and the melodies, and I sent them back, and he was like, "This is great." Then, then we knew this is we have something different. We have something new. We have a start, 
but it's kind of dark, so that hence the name Stuff in the Dark. We wanted to start from a more abstract place. We didn't want to start in a lighter, uh, more middle-of-the-road place. We wanted to find where are we, and everybody sort of brought their uh, influences into the recording, and it was we were in a different place. We were a new band, and yes, we were a bit sort of, we weren't scared or anything. I mean, we, we, we said, we, we're doing our own thing. If it takes five years, ten years, we, we're doing this. Maybe, they, it's, maybe they're just going to not like the three first albums. I don't know. We, let's just do this. But yeah, of course. I mean, what are they going to think? And it was mixed. It was mixed because the 80s fans that was really into those songs on the radio and stuff, they were like, what, what's this? What the hell is this? But then again, we gained a whole different audience as well that was thinking oh wow these guys this i can feel this stuff this has got more expression this is this this different you know and so yeah it was it was kind of a chaos but i think the release was when we played sweden rock festival but it was the first gig since we come back 2004 uh actually we did a, a show in the norwegian woods just to warm up but nobody sort of knew so the first gig sweden rock festival we didn't know how many people, but there was like 30,000. It was huge. And we st- I think we opened with Seven Doors Hotel, and we were like, and, and the, the, the front drop dropped, and, we, and people were like, whoa. And they were welcoming back, welcoming us back. We hadn't played in so many years, and that sort of, and then we got good reviews for that show, and, and that sort of really made us feel good and, and move forward. Yeah, it really did. And now that, that's another thing I want to talk about, because, You've had these six albums, you know, and Star from the Dark, yeah. Secret Society, they've been number one and number two in Sweden, and the reviews have been great. Mm-hmm. I have been speaking greatly of the band. When you look online, fans say, man, the, 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 the 2004 to 2017 Europe is such a different band and it's so great. And yet, coming over to North America to tour has been exceptionally, exceptionally difficult. Why do you think that is? Because the media over here has given you great reviews. Fans over here have given you great reviews. And yet making the flight over here has been difficult. Um, what do yeah. we do? It's been, a, it's, I mean, we love our first dream when we were kids was the two UK and, and the US. And obviously with Final Count on the third album, we started doing this. It was amazing for us. But yeah, it's been it's been a sort of we have a market in 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 Europe. We have some sort of like Scandinavia, some in Asia. We tour these places quite a lot, UK, and uh, we always talk about America. What can we do? What can we do? And it's actually the last couple of albums when we started work, working with Adam and Ace Siren and the man, American-based management that we started getting more insights and starting getting more, you know, ideas of how we can work it. And it's just been the the when I went to America, I've been to America over the years, over these past 10, 15 years, obviously, for various reasons. This could be a holiday or just or business or whatever. And I've realized the format of the radio has changed, the format of, of people's, um, what's, what's been played and what people buy. And then the business, as Mitch, as we know, is not the same today as what we were used to. So things have changed with America, too. And I've always been sort of, I wonder what, what it would be like to start really working here and and we've been thinking about it a lot. And at the same time, we've been pounding, pounding it over here, trying to build our uh, band up again. And, and, and we've been sort of waiting for a moment. And it's beginning to come now. And, and it's just the early days for Walk the Earth. But we haven't had this 
great response. Well, the interviews I've been doing for a few weeks with American press and everything, and what I've seen, it's, it's just the beginning, but it's, there's something there. There's, there's a glimmer there now that maybe has taken a while, maybe, for even the, the media and, and people in the broader media to, to hang on. They, they may have just thought that, no, this is just one of those bands from the 80s. It's, it's, they haven't, like you, heard our new, all our new albums. They haven't, you know, it's been a process for us. In the rock community, we are pretty much accepted, which we're so proud of. But in the broader sense, I don't know if, if we have broken through. But I think the song Walk the Earth, and I think maybe some other stuff on this new album could perhaps break through a little bit more. But it's 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 just um, it's strange. something you have to work on. Because yeah. I'm sitting in Montreal, and your first album came out in 1983. We are 2017, and you have not played, even as an opening act, this city ever. And I, I, that, that baffles me. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. We haven't played Canada that much, and that's ever pretty, actually. Well, uh, Maybe Toronto. I think you yeah, might have played have, Toronto. We've done a small, small show in Toronto. No, I hope I'm. I, I don't know. It in was Toronto. Yes. Yes. It was the the. Yes. The warehouse or something like that. But yeah. Yes. And I'm like, <laughs> it how was does an it awesome been? Little show we did. Yeah. The fans were great, and Vancouver. I mean, we have memories of a CBS convention there in '86, '87. We played Final Countdown for all the in-house. You know, Lenny Pizza, Walter Yetnikov, all those people. And Vancouver, I went back to Vancouver to write with Jim Valance for the Prisoner. I remember. I always loved coming to Canada, but but um, yeah, that's it's an area we need. Hopefully, we get a chance now. This later stage yeah. in our career, but it seems to be smooth. It seems to be going well. Hopefully, we get more chances now to do these things. Yeah, it's it's just bizarre. And 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 I'll finish with this. Um, years ago. John Norm was recording with Doc in an album called Long Way Home, and I happened to have been in the studio when he was doing his guitar solos. And what's on the album and what I saw in the studio were two completely different things. It's just amazing to watch him create and lay. Just talk to me for you uh, a bit about John Norm and what he is. Because when, when, when people list guitar heroes, you know, Eddie Van Halen, Randy Rhodes, but, but John is so damn good. Um, yeah. What has he meant to I mean, you I, I, and, and, and the band? And Yeah, Yeah, it started, I, I was 15, he was 14. Um, I saw him play with his first band, WC, they were called. And I, I was just mesmerized. I was like, is, can someone play like that around where I live? This is, and, and we met one night and we said, well, why don't we start a band together? And he's already, he did a solo on a record when he was 14. He started playing when he was 10. And he was already gaining a reputation in four years in around where I live. And I saw him play. It's like, oh, oh man, I have to meet this guy. And, and we started hooking up and hanging out. And, and we started forced together. But the greatest thing with John in the beginning was like, he was like, oh, Joey, have you got any songs? I mean, we can't play covers in rehearsal. I mean, we got anything. And he was, and when I came with something, he was like, oh, that's great. I love your writing. That's fantastic. It was never any like, oh, I want to write too or anything. He, he did. I mean, he, he he did sometimes, and and I loved it. But and he was, and I was like, with his guitar playing, you're amazing, John. And we sort of complimented each other, and and we were like brothers. And we also had that um, unspoken confidence that you know we're gonna have a band. We're, we're gonna do some stuff. And of course, we went to rec companies. They said, no, no, no we, we want you to sing in Swedish or whatever they said. And, and then 
together, we never gave up. We just kept pushing and keep rehearsing, go to shows together, the parties together. Um, it was a kind of a brother thing, and but he's it's his it's his tone and his feeling that I love. When 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 he's next to me, I, I don't worry about a thing. I just know it's an amazing player next to me that just compliments my vocals. I I, I don't even think about it. It's just amazing. And I don't know, it's it's his rich tone and his slightly bluesy feel with a melodic playing that I love. Uh, I, I love his roots in, in, in Clapton or whatever in, in some sort of, and then I love his Makashenka style where he's more sort of an aggressive, melodic kind of thing that he loves. And, and he just inspires me. He inspired me as a writer and as a, a band driver. And I was driving Europe and force and... He was the inspiration. He was the one that took me up to when we were a bit, having a few beers, just and, and, and sitting playing acoustic guitars together. And then let's go up to my place. My my, my dad's my uh, my stepdad works for a record company. He's got all these records, and he just put out put out. And late night he put out. You know, we listened to Neil Sean and Steve Perry, and he just listened to this. And then UFO, then Lizzie. I mean, I've heard these bands, but he was like, check this song out, check this solo out. Take this uh, solo um, on um, with Makashenko out on, on this UFO UFO song, you know, and he was in detail just describing and really inspiring me as a writer and as a band member and and just inspiring me to go forward. So he was a very important part of Europe's beginning. Without John, it wouldn't have been like that. It wouldn't have, it would have been completely different, and it wouldn't have been as good. I agree, and I just look back at the at the time from Prisoners in Paradise to Star from the Dark, where you two weren't working together, and I just go, "Damn it!" They're, you know, they lost some creative stuff, but but you know, probably that that break rekindled it and gave us what we have now. So, but uh, yeah, great great stuff. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I have to say, Key was having Key Michelle Marcelo in the band was great as well. Great great player and great humor, and had a lot of fun with him. But uh, so those years were kind of fun. But um, John has now been been in the band so long again, and it, it, the brother thing is back, and it's just uh, yeah, it's great. Listen, we've done half an hour. Always, always, always a pleasure. And of course, yeah. um, new album is great, and folks really need to check it out. So always a pleasure. Thank you, Joey. Thank you so much, Mitch. And uh, let's let's hook up soon. Hopefully next year we'll see you in. In, in Montreal, in Montreal, <laughs> Montreal baby. Look, look, yeah, you, you, you say you're saying we never played there, right? As far as oh, I can make this happen, I have yeah, done all the so research, too. and I yeah, the only Europe show. I think so too. I have I, I I have literally done the research, and the only show I ever saw yeah. was in Toronto, and it wasn't even in the beginning. It was yeah. it was either for yes, I know it was for it was the second part. Yeah. It was for bag. Yeah. Was it for bag of bones or last look of Eden? Yeah, it was a special it was club. That period. Right. And it was. It was a club gig for one of those. And you're like, how does yeah. this band not? That's, like I know, this, <laughs> is, this is a mystery that we need to sort to of fix. address, and yes. we need to look at this. I'm going to talk to Adam about it again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mitch. Thank you. Always a pleasure. All right. Talk Cheers. Yeah. Bye bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Rock Talk. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... 
Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, Dick Enberg here, and I'm mighty excited to announce the start of my new show, Sound of Success, right here on Podcast One. For 60 years, I've rubbed shoulders with sports greatness, from athletes in the world of football, baseball, college, and professional basketball, golf, tennis, the Olympics, and so much more. Join me as I explore in-depth stories from the greatest figures in the world of sport, and I'll share a few of my own. Download new episodes of Sound of Success every Thursday on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, and PodcastOne.com. Oh, my. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Big thank you to Joey Tempest of the band Europe. The new album, Walk the Earth, is absolutely recommended. It is, like I said, sort of a deep purplish 70s rock masterpiece so you're going to really really enjoy that and uh, speaking of a band that's been celebrating 40 years the babies i sat down with a drummer tony brock to talk about their new timeless anthology 2 and uh you know what let's just get right into this we we have not had a sprint episode this has been more like a marathon and and thank you for uh, for for your endurance and sticking through all of this but uh, here we go from the babies, timeless anthology number two, it is drummer Tony Brock. We are speaking with Tony Brock, drummer for the babies. They have a new pledge music campaign that you can check out at pledgemusic.com forward slash the babies. Uh, Tony, a great, great pleasure to speak with you today. Hey, Mitch. How you doing, buddy? Good. It's, Good. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you, too. And we're uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, so let's talk about this Pledge Music campaign, and then we'll sort of work our way back through the the, the history of the band. But uh, well, in fact, okay, in fact, the, the Pledge Music campaign is sort of working its way back through the history of the band as well. It, it is called Timeless Anthology Two, and uh, it's you're sort of reimagining some of the older songs, and there's some new songs. But talk to me about the project so that fans know exactly what we're up to. Well. We started it because, you know, um, since John White left the band, you know, well, I didn't leave the band. He just didn't want to rebuild it uh, four or five years ago. And um, we've we've not changed. We've made it even better. But we are, you know, the chemistry of certain people make it makes the the sound, obviously. And that's what the babies were in the beginning. And we haven't changed that. Um, I got... I got the chance to, you know, produce the last album and I produced this one. And um, it's turned out fantastic. It's called Timeless, as you said. And um, what we what we tried to do is, is to show how powerful we are now and we haven't lost it. You know, even though we're a little older now, the babies are just slamming. So... Um, we're really proud of it, and we've so we decided just why not why not do all the hits that we've had um, the way we sound now, and they're not they're not um, we're not trying to go out of our 
way to make them sound any different. They're just the way we play them now, and um, and keep them fresh. And and uh, plus, uh, I mean, as you know, uh, a great song is the only way you can keep a, a band alive. There's no way we could uh, put the babies back together if the songs and uh, you know the material wasn't as good as it is. So that that's what we ended up doing. So you know. Isn't it time? Every time I think of you, all it, everything's there, you know. Yeah. And uh, we're really proud, and we're plus a couple of new songs. So um, it's it's uh, it's turned out really well, and we're um, proud of it. So we're going on the road, and and away we go. So <laughs> yeah, when you go back and and listen to the songs to to to, to put them on an anthology like this, where you're where you're re-recording them. Is it really sort of about getting, you know, the new vocalist John on there? Uh, well, in fact, both vocalists were called John, but uh, Bishaha. Yeah. Bisha, I've always uh, had a Bishaha. Uh, yeah. Is it is it just about getting his voice on there, or do you also sort of reimagine it musically, where you say, ah, oh, you know, I'm not happy with that drum fill, or oh, that guitar could have needed an extra, t- you know, twang or whatever? Um, or is it let's yeah. keep it as authentic, but just have John? Number two, I guess. Same yeah. Way. Well, it's, it, it's not, I mean, John hasn't changed it too much. It was, you know, it was obviously a, a big pair of shoes to fill. And uh, when I was doing the auditions, and uh, I had singers around my around the block from my studio, and uh, or or trying to join the band, but obviously John Fasaha won the. Uh, the test and he, it was just, uh, it was magic. And, um, he's as good as John White, if not better. And we just, uh, uh, haven't changed it too much. We're trying, it's not about, um, making the band, um, different in, in any way. We're still the same. We're just, uh, there is, there is that luxury though, that you saying like changing drum fills and stuff, you know, I've grown, and uh, everybody in the whole band's grown. Wally's grown, and uh, now we're doing it um, extra professional versions of of what we had. But but we're still with tons of power and punch, you know. So we we haven't lost our energy or anything, and it's um it was just important to show the fans that it just because uh, John Wayne's not there, we are still the babies, and we always were. It's part of uh, the babies were uh, are still my drum sound and the way I play, and Wally's sound and the way he plays. Because we do most of the, uh, most of the writing, along with John, who insisted to do the the lyrics. But um, uh, that's just the way it is, you know. We're uh, like I said, we're really proud of it, and it's a great opportunity to um, update it a little bit. But we're try, not trying to uh, show off a different version. They sound really just just um, special, and they've got just as much magic as the original. And uh, for anybody that doesn't appreciate it, they're crazy, you know. If they don't like it, that's one thing, but we're, we're really proud of it, and we hope all the Babies fans are just going to stay with us and and love it, you know. If they don't, if they don't like it, then uh, you know it's kind of not. It's, it's too too bad, really, because we're, like I said, we're proud of it, and um, 
Yeah. And we haven't we haven't destroyed the the uh, the originals. Um, so we're, you know, that's that's a good thing. Right, and and of course, uh, for those that haven't heard the uh, last album, I'll have some of that that came out in 2014. That is definitely worth checking out because that was a a great sort of return to form, if if that's a, the proper way of putting it. Um, you know the oh, band. Sorry. Yeah, you like it. yeah, yeah. I, I had actually. I tried. Uh, I'm trying to think. I interviewed John. I'm sorry. I- for it back when it came out, actually. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Say that again. I, I, I actually, when, when the album came out in 2014, I actually interviewed right. the new singer and, uh, or who's no longer the new singer. It's three years three years ago, but we had a nice conversation yeah. about that. Um, but let me let, cool. me let me get to 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 the reformation because you know the the babies were 1979. Or sorry, 1975 to 1981. You had that that run. You know, uh, four albums the anthology and all this, and then you sort of disband, go your own way, and come back in 2013, you know, 30, almost 30 years later, 30 years later. Right. Um, talk to me about about the decision to sort of bring it back together and then, you know, tie that in also to the importance of a brand because you you and Wally could have certainly have been in a band and called it, you know, Timbuktu, and you would have been just as proficient playing and just as proficient, you know, you could have had John join, but it's not the babies. Sure. Um, no. So, so talk to me about no. saying, okay, we're going to get back together and then we're going to go get the name and we're going to say, this is us moving forward. Yeah. No, basically, um, uh, when John, uh, John White left the band and um, everybody split up, as you know, probably know, that Jonathan King went to Journey and uh, Ricky Phillips went to Sticks. Um, we still trying to uh, talk John into uh, keeping the babies alive. I mean, you can still do a um, a solo record and be in the in the babies. Just we weren't putting from doing that. So it, you know, but he just wanted to do his own thing on it um, by himself, and we, we respect that. And um, since we've uh, put the band back together, which Wally and I have talked about for years, I've I've stayed in touch with Wally, and um, he played with me for a, a year. You know, when I played with Rod Stewart, um, I got him in. Got him. Well, I didn't get him in the band, but suggested that he came in the band, and he got the job. And um, we. We just always talked about what what was the best thing you've ever done. It's the babies, you know. So when we decided to put it together, I spoke to Wally, and uh, he was living in Florida. And uh, I said, I'm not going to do it without you, and he wasn't going to do it without me. So that's that's how I'll have some of that came around. And we just, um, fortunately, I had my own studio, so I got to produce it. And I went out of my way to make sure that it was the baby sound. But it wasn't that hard because of the baby sound is, and still is, you know, um, uh, Wally Stocker's uh, guitar sound and the way he plays. Um, he plays like that Paul Kossoff sort of thing, you know, with Free and uh, Bagco. And I play like John Bonham, and, and uh, who's my buddy, uh, unfortunately, he's passed away, as you know, and um, that magic together kept the babies alive, and it still sounded like babies when we got John Basaha in the band. So, yeah. 
we kept the name, obviously, and because uh, we have we have uh, some hits under our belts, and why we we don't want to change the name and go out with someone else and do a, do babies uh, songs. Why would you do that? Might as well keep the babies the way they were. We've got two original members, which most bands don't have these days. Right. And so, you know, it, it just all worked out and fell together. And we're, we're loving every minute of it. it. The whole band that I put together is really special. There's no bickering or fighting anymore. And, and it's, you know, we have a magic that's together. And um, if you come to see us live, you'll see that we've lost no power. The babies were always we could stay we could stand next to anybody, you know. In fact we even did a show after A C D C one time and um held our own, you know. And yeah. uh we still held our own afterwards. So anyway, that's what we're doing and um and, and we're enjoying every minute. Now you uh you did of course mention your studios, so Silver Dream Studios, that that we'll we'll talk about that in a second. And you also mentioned that your two original members, which to me right away brings up uh, Kiss, because they're also two original members. Your first album, The Babies, that came out in 77. You worked with producer Bob Ezrin, who, of course, is known yeah. for Alice Cooper and Kiss and Pink Floyd. Um, right. Talk to me about working with Bob, because not only has he worked on some of my favorite albums, he's also a Canadian like me. Um, yeah, yeah. Good, eh? Yeah, yeah, a. But but what was it like working with Bob? Because he is sort of this mythical, uh, not even legendary, mythical producer at this point. What was that experience like for you? Well, it was really cool because um, uh, that was obviously our first album with with uh, putting the babies together, and um, he, I, I, you know, I soaked up. Um, We've, we've had, and let me say this again. I've, I've managed to be with best producers all my life, and um, I've stolen a lot of their ideas and, uh, and the way they do things, and learned how uh, you know how uh, John Bonham used to get his sound because we had Ron Neverson uh, do a couple of albums with the Babies, and uh, that was awesome. But but uh, Bob Ezrin was our, our first taste of doing it really professional. And um, obviously, he's a really great guy. And um, it was it was an adventure. You know, we, we had, went up to Canada and did it. And, and uh, loved Canada, by the way. And uh, it just uh, it just fell together really nice. We uh, enjoyed each other's company. And... Uh, yeah, we, we you know we had our ups and downs. Obviously, every every uh, producer band does. You know, we wanted to sound the way we wanted to, and Bob has his own idea. But we knew right then that what the babies were supposed to sound like, and um, and uh, he managed to get it for us. Yeah, and and, and he sort of uh, he has a vision in the studio, and he helps those bands uh, achieve that vision. Now, you did mention Ron yeah. Nevison, of course. Um, yeah. Ron Nevison uh, produced one of the greatest live albums ever, UFO, Stranger in the Night. And again, right. a Kiss fan, he did Crazy Nights. But he also did yeah. your Broken Heart album. Um, yeah, which is my, my, it's my favorite album of all time for the babies. And, and his producing yeah. style is very different from Bob's. Uh, 
Talk to me about working with Ron because another very respected. I mean, you know, when you look at the baby's career, you have the first album with Bob Ezra, and then you got Ron. I mean, you had all, you know, the cards lined up to have this massive, massive success. And, and of course, you did have yeah. great success. But, but let's let's just focus on on Ron here. What was it like having him, and how was he different than Bob? Oh, he was uh, much more aggressive. Um in a sort of passive aggressive way um but um i learned so much from him and like I, I said earlier that um i mean we used to go we used to take uh take over houses and um uh an empty house or an empty castle in la and and uh, bring the the record plant mobile recording truck up there and uh, record like that way. That's the way he used to do it with uh, with Zeppelin. So we did it the same way. We had the drums up on a in a in a stairwell and um, just very few microphones and it all all off to the the uh, around me were rooms where all the guitars and uh, vocals were, and everybody would be in the same room as me on the staircase. And uh, I used to have a one shotgun mic down the bottom of the staircase, which sounded huge. And um, all this stuff I, you know, kind of learned from uh, from him. And and um, and I got a chance to uh, sing uh, one of, yeah, on on that record. You know, the song called Silver Dreams, which ended up being my uh, name for the studio. But Ron had a, had a a sense of um, of control and direction. I mean, he's he's really responsible for bringing in the brass and and uh, the babettes, you know, and um, making it more soulful but huge. And um, that was a that was a great lesson working with that guy. And and uh, he was he was gonna do the new album with us, but it. it uh, it didn't work out, and uh, but he wanted to do it badly, and maybe he'll do the next one. But um, um, but Ron was a, a great guy to work with. We ended up uh, doing Head First itself. That the song uh, Wally and I wrote together in my little, in my apartment that I had at that time, and um, that became the uh, the last song on on the record, which ended up being the. The, uh, one of the better songs, so it 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 saved us, you know, in terms of making the record just push it over the edge. And of course, we had "Isn't It Time" and um, and uh, every time I think of you, every time I think of you, and um, we would. It was wrong that just that the vision, and I I jumped on the bandwagon right away. I knew what he was doing, and. Um, I'm proud of him for that, and it, he did a fantastic job, you know. And uh, the string, the, the string arrangements and everything were just incredible. And to this day, you know, we, we had to do, uh, I had to redo them on Timeless, and um, we, uh, we, we did have a little trouble getting them back, you know. But we got, we did, we made it. You know, and they sound just as good. So. Yeah, and you got him back for for the the head first album, and 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 that's what I I appreciate with both Bob and Ron. 
is that they, they really go for a full spectrum of sound. It really is an all-encompassing. They think of all those little details, and it needs a little triangle here, and it needs a keyboard. I mean, they really think of everything, yeah, both you, of them. Yeah, you have to. You've got no choice. You have to see the picture at the end of what's gonna, what it's going to be like, you know. What, what color is this going to be? What color is that going to be? What should I leave out so this stands out? You know, you can't just throw everything in and say, these are... These are all my tricks that I can do. And uh, it just becomes one big wash. What's the, I mean, what's the point of that? I mean, yeah, it's what you leave out, not what you put in. You know, that boring old saying, but that's the truth. Yep, it really is. Um, you also mentioned Rod Stewart before. You, you of course, uh, did some session work and, and touring, I guess, with, with Rod and Jimmy Barnes, who's you know, very big in Australia, lesser known over here. Uh, Elton John and others. Um, yeah. Why? Why not just sort of stay a a you know a, a gun for hire, a session musician guy, and and just sort of you know take the gigs you want? Because building the baby's back must have its challenges. You know. Um, yeah. Talk to me about working for those guys and and why you say okay, I want to go back and be the babies and build this myself because. You know, you can sit at home and say, okay, Rod's going to call. We'll go on tour. Perfect. I don't have to stress about the business end. Well, basically, uh, you know, I, brought, I met Rod in 74 and did some vocals for him, some backing vocals, and uh, and I became friends with him and the whole band. And um, when we signed the record deal for the babies, I mean, I don't know if you uh, anybody knows this, but we were the first band for the with the uh to get a, a record deal a huge record deal just by having a, a video oh, wow. and we made three songs for a video and then chrysalis jumped on board and did an incredible job putting us uh on the map you know it gave us billboards uh on sunset strip that the works we got the works and um basically after the baby's finished, I mean, I did my own, own little thing. I had my studio, and um, Wally and I would write songs together, which ended up on um, I'll Have Some of That. But um, Rod called me the, the day after. We just signed a contract with uh, Chrysalis Records, and we were on the plane on the way to, to see the... Uh, uh, you know, to go do to make the our first record with Ezrin, and um, he said, and Rod said, yeah, "Come, on. I've just signed with the baby. What do I, what do I want to do? Do I want to do my thing, or do I want to work for someone else?" And um, I chose to, you know, do my own thing, which is, you know, why I worked so hard in the first place. So um, the babies uh, stayed together, obviously, for five albums or whatever with the live album and um as soon as rod found out that the babies had broken up he called me up and just said hey come on it's time you know but it was a little difficult because carmine peace was in the band and um so and carmine was there whilst i was uh doing the planning album and it was a little awkward we'd become we became really good friends, and and uh, Carmine understood, but it was still very difficult for me. I, I hate doing that sort of thing, but it happens in the music business, and um, 
I ended up doing the whole record, the, you know, tonight's tonight. And, uh, uh, what, you know, what can I say? Just, it just jumped from there. Rod Stewart was just jumping up and down saying, you're the best drum I've ever had in my life. And, and, uh, we became great friends. And at that time, the reason why I stayed there, I stayed with Rod for 12 years. And the reason why I did that was because we were all one group. He never had his own dressing room. He was always in the dressing room with us. And um, we stayed together as one unit. It was great. So, I mean, I, how could I leave that? And then from there, I wanted to... Uh, Rod started to do the uh, the Vegas thing, and I, I didn't want to do that. You know, that's not my style. And um, so I ended up uh, re... Uh, producing and I went down to um, Australia and got a chance to produce um, with uh, Jimmy Barnes who's like uh, um, America's Bruce Springsteen yep. and he uh, we, had, we, had, we had a great time too and I ended up uh, meeting Keith Urban down there I produced Keith Urban's first couple of songs which I didn't have a clue he loved uh uh, country music at the time, <laughs> you know, so we did a couple of rock and roll tracks, but uh, it was still fantastic working with Keith Urban. And uh, of course, with Jimmy, we had seven uh, number one hits in a row. I was at Dan back there, back and forth for, uh, for seven years. I almost uh, felt like I lived down there, you know. Uh, but it was. Uh, it was a great experience, and I got got a lot of uh, a lot of uh, control myself and an understanding of what a producer is supposed to be. And how, you know, it is stressful, but as you said before, you have to have that uh, picture and what you got to do as a as a producer, keep them all in line. And and uh, it was great. So that's what you know. That, you know, to answer to your question, that's the reason why I went with Rod because it was. A band. It wasn't. I wasn't just a hired hand. You know, if I was just just a uh, just a, the drummer for Rod Stewart and that didn't mean anything, I wouldn't have done it. You know. And uh, so. Uh, and Rod's album, of course, tonight I'm yours. One of the one of the many albums you played on was a massive, massive success. Uh, uh, oh was, yeah. Um, I I. I I do want to finish with this here, the uh, the Silver Dream Studios, and you can go to silverdreamstudios.com and you can contact the band. Um, talk to me about putting together your own studios and and what what can a fan who goes, checks it out, expect? I mean, do you offer all the services? Is, is it specialized services? Is it just for, you know, the, the Keith Urbans of this world, or is it open to anybody? What is yeah, Silver? Yeah, no, it's... it's- it would. Um, unfortunately, like the two weeks ago, I just moved to Atlanta, so I've shut that one down. But I'm building as we speak the brand new um, Silver Dream Studios, and um, but it's going to be more of the same. It's just going to be so comfortable. But we're um, it, it's going to be in the record plant range where anybody can come in and uh, record. It's going to be, well, I have a you know, really, really nice Neve equipment and uh, Neumann mics, the whole works. And so it's totally professional. Uh, we it, 
um, I'm looking forward to the new new version of it. But the album was was incredible. We you know we did all have some of that in there, and um, I'm proud of that. So this new one is going to be even bigger. You know, it's going to be at least three thousand square feet with uh, a couple of uh, rooms for editing for with Pro Tools and um, I'm recording on Pro Tools and tape, so uh, people can have the difference. You know, like the old days with the punch from the uh, from the kick drum on the tape. Yeah, the warmth. And yeah, so. Um, it's going to be open for, for everybody and anybody that wants to come in, you know, it's going to be, uh, really special. And, um, I'm, I go out of my way to make sure it's comfortable and, and have, uh, you know, like the, the pool table and places to, for people to go and enjoy themselves. And, um, it's, this, this new one is working out fantastic. So I can't, I can't wait to uh, do my first thing in it. And, and of course, uh, record a new uh, baby's record in there would, would be great. Oh. And um, do, do you, by the way, still speak to John Waite, or has it been, you know, he left yeah. the band? Okay, so there's not a lot of no, bad blood. No, okay. you know, that, that was a big deal for me, because um, I, the last thing we wanted, when I put the, uh, I mean, I asked John Waite to come back, um, three or four times, and he just uh, he was thinking about it, then no, then no, then no. He just he still wanted to keep his own thing going, and um, he didn't want the, the responsibility, I guess, of being with other members and equal members. And um, so um, I understand that. I appreciate it, and uh, we talk all the time. We still email each other back and uh, see how we're doing and we end up doing a lot of the same venues so um, uh, he gets to hear what we're doing by you know uh, via the, the uh, owners of the clubs or whatever or the venue that we're doing and uh, we get the same and uh, people are really proud of uh, the way we portray the babies and um, uh, but John and I have both said, you know, we're not going to, we both want it to work. We we don't want to knock John Waite, and John Waite doesn't want to knock us. So we're uh, we're all good, you know? That's And that that as a fan is great to hear. Uh, of course, yeah. uh, I do invite everybody to go to thebabiesofficial.com, the Pledge Music campaign, and everything else, tour dates and everything else you need to know, uh, all there. Uh, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You can see anything, anything that we're doing there, and this pledge, the pledge music uh, is incredible. I mean, we you, you can come in and sing on one of the songs. Of course, I mean, whoever um, does that, they're the only ones that get a copy. But you can come in and do backgrounds on the vocals. They can come and do some hand claps. They can. Um, We've got two guitars for sale. We're all signed by the whole band. I got um, drumsticks with my name on it, which I've signed and buy. And uh, obviously the T-shirts and the hats and all that sort of thing. So yeah, I'm looking at that. There's over like 30 items you can get. I mean, other than getting the CD, there's there's the baby's water bottles, eight by tens, all access uh, backstage passes that includes yeah. hanging out at soundcheck uh, hats drumsticks 
uh, everything. In fact, yeah. uh, there's a T-shirt down here that I'm looking at that I'm going to have to go buy later because it looks great. <laughs> oh no, we'll see. we'll send you one. Yeah, I, I like that one. That the, the twenty-five dollar one, this the black crew T-shirt. That looks great. It looks fantastic. Okay. Actually. But uh, Tony, a great pleasure. There, there's there's so much more to cover, but we'll we'll leave it at that for for today. And uh, folks. Remember, okay, buddy. thebabiesofficial.com. Go check that out. Lots of great stuff. And uh, All right, buddy. Well, thank you very much. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and uh, great questions. So thank you. thanks for doing your homework. I really appreciate it. Well, I, you know, I do think it's the responsibility of, of any person who does interviews to do the research. I think it's just a, a question of respect to come up on an interview and say, you know, so tell me about this and tell me about that. And do you like the yeah. color blue? And I mean, it's like, come on. I mean, you know, come on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I've seen interviews yeah. like that. And I don't mean to, to disparage anybody who, who, who does that, though. I guess I have by saying what I said. But no, I think it's just a question of common courtesy and respect that you, you do the research. That's, that's the gig, uh, right? You got to do the gig. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you know, don't, if you know. You know, sometimes they get we do interviews and they're just really silly. They don't know, uh, understand or what I'm talking about. But uh, obviously, you get it. And you and uh, um, thank you very much for that. It's, oh yeah, uh, well, it's, it's, it's good. It's good know, to talk to you. But I, I do have I do have memories of you know the very first time I went to Florida in 1979. I was walking around a mall. And at that that mall, I don't know the name of the mall, but they were playing music, and I remember hearing uh, Tom Petty songs, and I remember hearing the Babies songs, and that's the first time I heard the Babies was this mall was playing it over its loudspeakers as if it was an FM channel, right? And and you know, so the Babies have been part of my musical heritage for for well since that day back in '79. And, That's good uh, to hear. Yeah, and and, good to hear. and it's good to hear that the band is back because a lot oh, of bands yeah. come and they they disappear and you know. And that's, uh, yeah, that, that, that's because they, they, you know, they haven't held it together. We're slamming. I'm telling anybody that comes to our show, they'll 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 love it. I promise you, and because we're putting everything that we have into it, and um, yeah. And in fact, they don't even have to go to your show. If you go to the Pledge Music campaign, there's an acoustic house concert. The show can come to them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But I'd love it. I'd love it if they came to the shows, though. (laughs) Well, yeah, but that's what I mean. You know what I mean? You can get that, too. No, but it's it's been a great pleasure. And uh, I I will uh, we will definitely do a uh, another new interview, uh, you know, uh, soon. Cool. That'd be fantastic. I really appreciate it. You take care of yourself. Okay? Thank you, Tony. All right, buddy. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.